This morning's October 3rd. Our message is called The Perfect Storm, and uh, that's, that's our topic this morning. I wanted to cover a couple things uh, this morning just in thought, though, some of the events from the week. Um, I want to tell you that one thing that lets us know that this church is uh, growing in a healthy manner is the fact that we're all overcoming. And I'm excited about that because when I look at each life here, I see that there's an ample amount of adversity that's, that's supposed to be there. It's resistance that keeps us in shape spiritually and that we're not being conquered by that adversity. Whether it's Dave and Jennifer or Matt and Cassidy or Darnell and Steve, whoever it is in here, your lives are progressing and that's beautiful. And when you preach about adversity, you often get to live adversity. I mean, that's, that's just probably whether you preach or not, you're going to live it, but hopefully uh, you've learned something about it to help you live it. And this, uh, this week, uh, my washing machine exploded three times, and I think everybody has seen me working on it at some point. My son knocked out his only two permanent teeth, and um, we just have had a, a fair amount of adversity. And I did exactly what you're not supposed to do at the moment that I began to hear about this adversity. I did what David did. David was facing uh, the latter years of his life, and was under some pressure, and so he began to take a census of his army. And this greatly displeased the Lord. And we think, census of your army? How could you have done that, Eric? You have no army. Our relationship to that teaching is this. When you meet a problem, and the first thing you do is begin to look at all the ways that you can solve that problem, which seems like a totally practical thing to do. Your washing machine dies. You begin to think about which credit card it may or may not fit on, or how you would would handle not having a washing machine when your son knocks out his teeth, all of those things, you begin to look at the way that your own arm can save you. And true enough, usually when a tooth gets knocked out, it's the parents who pay for the tooth or a washing machine or whatever. But as I began to kind of panic at this thought, my father and I were driving from Louisiana to here. And by the way, everybody knows my dad. I'm glad he's here. I'm proud of my father. I love him. My little boys love him, and I'm excited about this time where we can all be together. Well, y'all should get to know him. But in any case, we're driving in separate vehicles. My wife tells me this. My heart just sank, you know. Now, grown men aren't supposed to cry, you know. So, I, you know, I was, we really do. But I wasn't crying over it. But the two possible reactions for me are usually tears or anger, and anger was the uh, drug of choice at the moment. I, I was upset about it. And I started thinking about protected through adversity, and unlikely servants, and all of those messages we've preached lately, and something began to well up inside me. And I called Jennifer back, and I said, you know what, sweetheart? The same God that's provided for our needs from the beginning of our marriage till now will provide for our needs from now till the end when he arrives. So don't worry about it, because uh, we had discussed how we were going to pay for things. I said, don't worry about it. It will work out. So I came home with the thought I was going to fix a washing machine and all, and was unloading a vehicle out front, and came inside for a minute, three, four, five minutes, walked back outside, and there was a washer and dryer there in my driveway. And none of you look surprised. I wonder why that is. Now, this was significant for a couple reasons. Not just that I needed a washer and dryer, but when the body of Christ functions like it's supposed to function, nobody has too much and nobody has too little. Now, I'm not talking about communism. I'm not talking about some governmental enforced thing that says David made $200,000 and Mandy only made 100000 so we need to force David to share with her. I'm talking about something that is spirit-led that causes us to be more concerned about our brother's needs 
than our own. And because of that reciprocal relationship, God is able to meet everybody's needs. The church started this way. It also started meeting in homes. This is how Christianity began. It was only when a hierarchical papal system came into place that this began to malfunction. Now, here's why this is important. It's not so that we can wash clothes, although uh, I'm very excited that we can wash clothes. I think you all would prefer for me to have clean clothes. We all smell better this morning. This is important for a couple of reasons. Think about this from outsiders' perspectives. And we never do things for other people to see, but the reality is they do see what we do. First day my father is here, we had a, a crisis and the need was met. That's pretty good witness, huh? My neighbors next door, the only thing they know about this church is they saw some people drop off a washer and dryer on our doorstep. And they said, boy, I could use some friends like that. I said, do you know where you find people like this? And they looked at me like I was going to tell them a secret. I said, at church. We all go to church together and we really care about each other. It's a loving place. Now, that's a strange thing for one man to tell another one from a worldly perspective, you know. And he's looking at me kind of cross-eyed, but I guarantee you he's interested. I don't mean interested like a sales pitch. This is not normal behavior. And because it's not normal behavior, because it's abnormal or it's not natural, it's supernatural, people are drawn to it. That's the church being the real church. Uh, I say that to pat you on the back. Good job for, for doing what Jesus would do. I don't say that to encourage people to give washers and dry. I already got some. <laughs> I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm excited that the gospel is really working. The only other church I was ever a part of starting and seeing grow to uh, a maturity was a church that started just this way. We used to take up the offering and sometimes we didn't know what to do with the stuff in it because there'd be a title to a car that was not, I don't, not a Mercedes, but a title to a car. Somebody didn't know what to do and they wanted to give a car to Jesus so they gave us the title. There were rings. We didn't know how to convert this into something the church could use half the time, but it was where people's hearts were. Uh, when your whole life belongs to the Lord, it shows and people begin to see it. But on our topic of the perfect storm, I think some of this will begin to come together. We have preached a lot about adversity and how you handle adversity, how you're protected through it, how you overcome it. The reality is, unless Christians are in adversity, nobody gets to see you're a Christian. You look like everybody else until struggles enter your life. And then you have the opportunity to excel because your behavior becomes different. Obedience is never tested in a child until you tell a child to do something he doesn't want to do. But at the moment you have two sons and you tell them both, go clean the room, one is obedient and the other is not, you can see a difference between the two sons. Same thing is true of us. When you're in a storm is when people get the opportunity to see whether or not you're a child of God. And you know what? Most of the time people create storms in your life just to see. Sometimes when somebody's rude to you because you tell them you're a Christian, what they're really trying to do is find out, if I slap your face, will you really turn the other cheek? Is this real to you or is this a game like everybody else I've ever seen? See, we stay frustrated with social Christianity. What we don't realize is all the lost are frustrated with social Christianity too. They don't meet real Christians. They don't meet people that really live this out. They only meet people who pacify their conscience on a Sunday by hearing some paid orator. They don't meet people that take this seriously. And when they do, it's life-changing. It's odd. It's an event that will stay with them forever. Okay, turn with me to Matthew 7. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Those of you in the Thompson chain, this is page 1076. 
Matthew 7 is the Scripture that got me saved. I had been in church for a long time. I had been raised in an environment that was uh, around Christianity, that took it seriously at times and not other times. Uh, Like every other child, I was raised in an environment where I saw what preachers said and then I saw what people did. It's the reason most don't go to church. This one verse that I'm going to start with is what began to change my life. See, I could quote all of the Scripture that I needed to quote. I had all of the outward requirements. I'd been baptized and all of those things. I thought I was a pretty good guy, but this Scripture cut me to the very core. It's Matthew 7, verse 21. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You know, I could say a lot of things about myself. I could tell you that Jesus was God, that I believed in the inerrant Word of God. I could tell you um, how many books were in the Bible. I could give you a general synopsis of each book. All of those things. And I was lost. And you know why I was lost? There was not the slightest indication in my life I was even making an attempt to do the will of God. Instead, I acknowledged who He was. I believed that. And I thought that my belief, my acknowledgement that He was God was enough. I called that faith. But the reality is God takes each one of us to a place where you're aware that He exists. That's the first step. Ecclesiastes says that He put an uh, eternity in your heart, an innate longing for Him. Then the Psalms tell us that the creation pours forth speech day and night that all men understand. In other words, every man is hardwired to have a longing for something more than this life in him, something eternal. Then the creation itself is supposed to teach man that there is a creator. The complexity of the creation, the enormity of space, all of those things are supposed to show you there is a God. Then the Bible puts into practice these principles. Once you know there's a God, or or begin to at least be inclined towards that thought, you're forced to this conclusion. If there is a God, I wonder if He requires anything of me. How do I reach Him? How do I contact Him? The Bible is the story of how you do that. But all men are hardwired with that. So now that I knew that there was a God, I knew about His Bible, this was what was forced upon me. I had to decide whether or not I was going to begin to try to do His will or not. That's what got me saved. Now, what comes right after this is verse 22, and we'll get to our point. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and in Your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. It doesn't matter what kind of churchy things we're involved in. Our goal on earth is to do God's will for our life, period. I I will never forget Brad telling me a story about a guy who was a politician and a Christian. And he went to a seminary, came out of seminary, he pastored a church for a while, then he went into a, a public office, always speaking with people, always doing things with people. And he had a heart attack at 52 years old. This is this guy's testimony. It's not my testimony about him. It's his testimony. He says that in his heart attack, he died. And the paramedics say that he did die. His heart stopped uh, for so many minutes. And you've heard these kind of stories before, but this one might be a little different. This guy had been a preacher. He had been somebody who everybody would say was a Christian and a good one, a politician, public servant. He said he found himself standing before God. Now, I don't know how that worked. I don't know what he saw. He says he was standing before God and a thundering voice said, 
give an account of your life. He said he was startled, uh, but began to say, well, I'm a Christian at this age, and I went to seminary, and I was a pastor, and I did all of these things. And he said the voice said, louder and more forceful, give an account of your life. He said he stammered around again, began to think. Well, uh, I was a Christian. I was a politician, all these things. And he said, I did not tell you to do those things, and this was not my will for your life. He said the guy was broken, just crushed to his knees. And then uh, he said the next thing he saw, the paramedics were uh, doing CPR on him and all of those things. And he feels like he was given a second chance for this reason, to encourage people to do God's will. We get involved in all kind of activities that God never intended for us to get involved in and don't do His will. Cassidy shared a, a prophecy, a teaching, whatever we want to call it today, about the times when she could have given or we could have given of ourselves and we didn't for some reason. Well, you start fresh today and today you make up your mind you will begin to do God's will and you know what? You're going to fall on your face sometimes and that's why it's called grace. Another thing Brad shared with me uh, as I talked with him Saturday, he said, Eric, I'm beginning to realize that if I'm going to be a minister of grace and mercy, I'm going to be somebody that's shown a lot of grace and mercy. I thought about that and we talked more about it. What he's saying is the more he blows it and falls on his face and feels like he's not doing a good job, the more he's able to show mercy to other people when they're not doing it right. Christians are... Uh, almost a hated group of people for, for this reason in workplaces and everywhere else. Every Christian you ever meet seems to have the attitude that you're all wrong and he's all right. And they look for reasons to exclude you. You smoke, you drink, you don't wear the right clothes, your hair's wrong, too much makeup, not enough makeup, too, curls in your hair, no curls, whatever it is. And we're sectarian in that sense and form this little esoteric group of we're the only ones that are right. If you have been shown mercy it will compel you, when you know you don't have it all right, to give others a little slack. You, do you understand what I'm saying? Now, on to the point. In Matthew 7, verse 24, this really, I said all that to get here. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. This is not uh, rocket science. Nothing Jesus ever said was. He put things in terms that anybody can understand because he wanted to be understood. If you put the words of Jesus into practice in your life, your house of your life, the accomplishments of your life, the deeds of your life, the members involved in your life, will all have a relationship that is like a house that was built on a rock, a firm foundation, so that when the storms of life beat against it, it does not crumble. Instead, it stands. But if you don't put God's Word into practice in your life, then your house will continually crumble around you. Now, when you see people's lives with uh, a trail of devastation and um, not adversity, but adversity that has overcome them in their lives, and all of us have been there, 
What you're seeing is a foundation that is something other than the Word of God. When you drive down 59 and you stop at a stoplight, or there's no stoplights on 59, but you exit somewhere, and you see the guy standing out there with signs, begging for, for uh, food and money and those kind of things, not bad people. Show them mercy. Show them love. But here's the thing. Not because they're poor, but because where they are, you know that that house that has crumbled all around them, it was not built on the right foundation. How do you know that? Because the Word says that the righteous will never be forsaken and their children will never be begging for bread. Now, I'm not telling you they're bad people. I'm telling you they misapplied God's Word or didn't apply it at all somewhere in their life. I'm not using this as a measure to say, oh, well, he's rich, he's poor, so he applied God's Word and he didn't. That's foolishness. It's carnal. God will, we're going to cover. God will plunge you into adversity so you can be a light to others. You should be willing that you be poor if it's useful to God in some way. But what I am telling you is if you see your, your life crumble around you, you need to examine your foundation. So the first thing we're talking about with storms is if you want to endure a storm, you have to have the right foundation because the storms are going to come, period. Whether your house is built right or not built right is irrespective. The storm comes. If you want to survive it, you need to be on the right foundation. From there, we're going to look at a couple purposes for storms. Turn to uh, Exodus. Exodus 9. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. Exodus is the second. And we're going to be in Exodus 9. <laughs> Exodus 9 is on page 70. Yeah, we're slowly pushing everybody into the Thompson Chain Bible in here. Uh, Stephen uh, set aside his complete Jewish Bible today. He didn't know where it was, and I told him that was God, so he'd have the right back. <laughs> I'm teasing. I love that other translation too. Uh, in Exodus 9, verse 13, we see a story. And this story was a real event. It happened. Uh, you can even go to Egypt and see some of the events borne out in archaeology from these stories. In Exodus 9:13, it says... Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of Hebrews, says, Let my people go, so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plague against you, and against your officials, and against your people. So you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up, or your footnote will say spared you, for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set your feet against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every man and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Stay there because we're going to keep reading that. But here's something. Think about this. Was God just trying to be mean to Pharaoh? Why would he warn him? You know, 
If we were going to go attack some other country because they were holding captive some two million Jews, which is an estimate of how many Jews were in Egypt at this time, would you warn them, tell them that we were coming? Would you tell them you better want to get in your bomb shelters because we're going to drop bombs on you? What God is doing is saying, hey, I'm trying to show you something, Pharaoh. I'm the God over all the earth and you're kicking against me. I'm trying. I've raised you up and spared you to this point for the purpose of showing you myself so that you'll get the message and obey my word. Now, some of the officials feared God, heard this word, and were obedient. You know what? Their sons and their livestock were spared. They went inside. Some didn't, and they died. And we're going to see that. God said the storm is coming. Some were obedient to His word and were benefited because of that. Others were not obedient. Here's what storms do in some people's life, though. Verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky so that hail will fall all over Egypt on men and animals and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. By the way, when you see those stories on Discovery Channel and stuff, and you see them all the time at History Channel, and they'll tell you that the plagues were natural events that have been reinterpreted uh, to, to show God. This plague started and stopped at Moses' command by stretching his hand out to the sky. Not only was it hailstones unlike any other that had ever fallen, but it started and stopped at Moses' commands. And we're not going to read that far. But Moses says, it'll stop at my word after we leave when we get to a certain place so that you'll know God brought it and God stopped it. So that it couldn't be confused with a natural event. And yet today, even though the Bible says that, and that's our best record of the event, people are going to debate whether or not this was just a naturally occurring thing. When Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt... Hail struck everything in the fields, both men and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen where the Israelites were. That's another reason this is not a natural event. Goshen's in the middle of Egypt. It hailed all around Goshen but stayed out of Goshen. So, well, that could happen. Well, later there's a plague of darkness. It gets dark everywhere in Egypt but Goshen. It says it did this so that they would understand God makes a distinction between His people and other people. That ought to encourage you when people get worried that we're going to live through a tribulation. God makes a distinction between us and them. He can bring something upon the whole world and yet spare His own people while they're on the earth so that people look and see the only people that aren't affected by this are those that are in covenant with God. He does this to teach. Look at Pharaoh's response, though. This is what we were going for. Verse 27 Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, When I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. What did this storm produce in Pharaoh? It produced, and it's temporary. We know Pharaoh doesn't hold on to it. The reality is sometimes storms come in people's life not as a punishment by God. That's how they're viewed. Oh, what did I, what did I say? 
Lord, what did I do to deserve this? You know, this is a bad week. They are not brought to punish you. They are brought to teach you something. They're, they're brought to get your attention so that you will refocus. You know, to repent means to redirect. If I'm going this way and I turn around and walk that way, a literal translation would be, I repented. To, re, to repent literally means to turn around. This was not, Pharaoh, you're a bad guy. I'm going to beat you with a stick. It, it was to get Pharaoh to change his direction. Some of the storms that come in our lives, lost and saved, are for no other reason than to get you to bring a change in your direction. Anybody in here see the movie Italian Job? Yeah, what a church are we? We're quoting movies. But look, I can't help it. If Hollywood gets something right, let's, let's point it out, you know. Stephen was telling me about a prophecy in the year 2000 on television by that channel with the with so many people on it that are uh, evangelists and maybe strange appearances. But the prophecy was in the year 2000, in January, they prophesied that there was a day coming when Hollywood would make movies about Jesus for the masses that would be good movies. Now, what has happened in the last year? He's got that on tape. Now, if you had heard that in January of 2000, what would you have thought? This chick's been watching too much TV, right? Because we've not seen very much good stuff out of Hollywood. And yet, here we are. We had a movie, The Passion, that's got more people talking about Jesus. It's probably been a more effective evangelistic tool than anything the media has ever produced since radio in the 40s. You know? I mean, awesome, awesome stuff. Well, in the movie Italian Job, which is certainly not The Passion of Christ, I understand that. There's this scene that, that made me think about storms and adversity and what God does. I have struggled for a long time, as do most students of the Word, with the thought. Uh, I, I remember my dad asked me one time after reading the book of John, astute observation. John goes through great lengths to point out Jesus knew this would happen before it would happen. He knew this and he knew this because John is trying more than any other gospel to show you Jesus is God. So it brings up this question. Well, if God knows this stuff, why go through it? You know, why do this? And he said, but wait a minute, I thought the Bible teaches a free will. How can God know what I'm going to do and still have a free will? Now, I hate to say that I learned in a movie, but I did. <laughs> I learned something in a movie. In the movie Italian Job, you remember the dorky computer guy that wanted a stereo so loud it blew women's clothes off? Yeah, I remember y'all would, y'all would remember that. Well, he was a computer hacker. And he hacked into Los Angeles DMV computer. You remember this in the movie? What did he do when he hacked in? He began to control traffic signals, didn't he? Now, tell me something. When you're driving down the road and you see a stop sign, do you have to stop? No. Should you stop? Sure. Have you ever chosen not to stop at a stop sign? Yeah, no. (laughs) Of, Of course not. You have a choice whether or not you stop at that stop sign, don't you? Yeah, 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 a rolling stuff. I believe it was Matthew that, that uh, has the immortal quote, you know, where there is no copper, there is no stopper. Yeah, uh, yeah without, without law, there is no, whatever, transgression. Uh, so this guy in the movie, he hacks in, right? The whole goal in, in him hacking into this database is these trucks that are carrying uh, gold bullion are going a certain way and he wants to direct them through traffic. He wants to redirect them. How did he do it? He changed traffic signals. Now, those people had a choice at each signal whether or not to obey that or not to obey it. But the likelihood is given certain circumstances, even people of free will do certain things. This kind of plays into last message, kings and pawns. 
where good chess players can think five, ten moves ahead. In other words, they know if you move from E5 to E6 or whatever it is, you don't sink the battleship, but you move, you know what response that will produce from your opponent. It's almost probabilities, right? The whole insurance industry is built upon this. There are people that can calculate your average lifespan. Now, there are always exceptions and there's no doubt. But it's not unlike God putting traffic signals in people's lives. Oh, this guy's going the wrong direction and I love him. I would like to bring repentance. So I'm going to put a crash at this intersection so he'll turn a different direction. Now, he's got free will. He might say, you know, I'm not doing it and climb over the crash and keep going the way he's going. And because he's a merciful God, he might put another crash in there. You got me? Uh, in other words, you have free will. You can do whatever you want. But Acts 17.26 says God determined the places you would live and He set boundaries for you so that you would reach out and find Him though He's not far from you. This process never stops. This is not to bring you to salvation. It's to keep you saved. It's not just to keep you saved. It's to keep you on track where you're going. What did Jesus say to Paul or when he was Shaul, Saul? What did He say to him? He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? You know, they have this conversation. He says, you keep kicking against the goads or pricks. However you think about it, a goat or a prick is how you steer an oxen. God had been providing in his life directional changes, little stabs to get him to do certain things because he saw value in Paul and he loved him and he wanted Paul to reach his calling. Now, if you had been a Christian in Paul's day, would you have been all that excited about Paul? He'd been throwing Christians in jail. He'd been killed. God picks people we wouldn't pick. You want proof of that? Go look in the mirror. You're here. <laughs> Just take a gander up here. You could have asked people a year before I got saved who was the most unlikely to be standing here doing this. And I guarantee you in my school, in my sphere of friends, it would have been me. Now, God put things in my life. He appointed a beating for me one time. Now, you say, what do you mean He appointed? It was Eric that chose to do those things. Yeah, it was. And in that movie, Italian Job, people chose to either turn right or turn left or go straight or stop. But there were little signals that helped them make those choices. God's a big God. He sees centuries ahead. He told Abraham he was going to do this in Egypt 400 years before it happened. He said, well, did Pharaoh have a choice? Absolutely he had a choice. But God raised him up for this purpose. He put things in his life that would steer him in this direction. I can't remember where else I was going. Beating. I made bad choices that got me into that beating, but God worked in it for my good. In fact, I believe that He saw what was in my heart, saw my motivations, arranged chess pieces so that certain people would be there that night, that I was likely to do certain things, and this event would occur because it was a strategic changing point in my life. You say, what do you mean? What kind of God is this that would allow you to get beaten up just so that you would do His will? A good God. The kind of God that loves you enough to do whatever it takes. Now, that's uncomfortable theology for people. I know it is, but I don't care because it's what's in the Bible. I mean, you can see it everywhere. The guy who is uh, the parable of the uh, Good Samaritan. Guy's on the right road going the wrong direction. So he gets robbed and beaten and you think, oh, how horrible for him. No, it's great. Because if it hadn't happened, something worse would have happened to him. Not because God was punishing. God was trying to get him to change his direction. Does that make sense? Happens all the time in our life. So then the struggle begins. Is this a situation where God's trying to get me to change my direction? 
Or is it something I need to persevere on my course realizing that I'm the Christian in this environment and I'm here to hold out a light to the other people enduring it? See, it's not so simple as to say every adversity is God trying to get you to change your mind. If you take the path of least resistance in your life, you'd be as crooked as any stream. You know, the path of least resistance makes rivers and men crooked. I mean, it's true. Okay, from here, let's turn to Psalm. Psalms 107. From Exodus, you'll want to hang a right. Psalms is right in the middle of the Bible. It's the largest book in the Bible and makes it easy to find this way. And uh, we're going to begin at the beginning of the chapter. So it's page 677 in the Thompson Chains. Here, storms are obviously a metaphor for all kind of other things. I mean, literally, we're not talking about walking out and standing in the rain. But if you live in a time when shelter is not like it is now, storms are one of the uh, most obvious signs of adversity you can have. You remember when we talked about David's life? King David, the very first obstacle he learned to deal with were natural elements. Uh, the first thing he had to deal with was lion and bears and the weather. And as he advanced, so did his adversity advance. Because adversity is something in a Christian's life that keeps you focused. It's kind of like that prayer, Lord, give me neither riches nor poverty. If poverty, I might be tempted to steal, to feed myself. And if riches, I might be tempted to forget you. Well, there's real wisdom in that. If there's a certain amount of adversity in your life, you keep your eye on the prize. You have a healthy understanding that God's who He is to you. And you depend on that and you keep, keep your life in perspective. People tend to get in trouble when there's a lack of adversity in their life. Remember, King David put all of his enemies under his foot. He had nobody challenging him anymore, so he didn't have to depend on God daily and he ended up out on a roof checking out Bathsheba taking a bath. And that led him from lust to adultery to murder. If he had been out fighting, that wouldn't have happened. So sometimes you can praise God that your life's a little bit of a struggle. The real trick is to learn to be content in the struggle. The guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament spent his time uh, in danger of sharks at sea, uh, in danger of countrymen being beaten, in danger of being robbed, in prison, and all those things. And, you know, he says, I've learned the secret to being content in everything. And we have some insight into that when he says, all things work together for the good of those that love the Lord. It means no matter what happens in your life, you can smile in the face of it and say, God's going to work this out for my good. I know I say it a lot, but it's like that guy said, the church of living God's an anvil that's worn out many hammers. You can't be hit hard enough to knock you out if your foundation is on the rock. But when your foundation's not on the rock, of course your house is going to crumble. Now, on the rock, I'm not saying you don't feel splintered. You know, I'm not saying it doesn't hurt. I'm not saying that it is not hard. I'm not saying that Christians who have been built on the rock have not had their houses crumble. But every time that happens, every time there's a sincere Christian relationship and there's a divorce or uh, adultery or some other horrible thing, you can always trace it back to some place where you deviated from God's Word. Always. Always. Because when we live these principles, they work. I'm sad to say that, you know, our statistics in the quote-unquote church for most bad things are the same as the world's. That tells you something about the church. Uh, Y'all in Psalm 107? Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. That's profound in itself. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say this, those He redeemed from the hand 
of the foe, those he gathered from the lands, from east and west, from north and south. Get that. You know what it is to gather from the north, east, west, and south? What are you if you've been gathered like that? You're people that have been drafted by God. The ecclesia of God. Oh, heard that, I know. The word church means the group of called out ones. So who is he talking about here? He's talking about the redeemed of God that were called out from all the lands of the earth. The special remnant, people of God. Some wandered in the desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His unfailing love and for His wonderful deeds for men. He satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. We'll go on, but... What would have happened if they weren't out in a wasteland? And, or if they'd found cities to settle in? Sometimes the prodigal son that has run far from God has got to get to a place where he's eating with pigs before he realizes he needs God's help. Let me do, here's a little secret I've learned the very hard way. The stronger you are as a person, the more so... Have you ever heard that religion is for women and children? Yeah, I've heard it too. Have you ever heard that religion's a crutch for the weak-willed, weak-minded? Yeah, been there, done that. I work with psychologists, okay? I understand why people say that, but here's the reality. God humbles proud people, and He raises up humble people. That is a scriptural principle that is as true as gravity, cannot be fought. Whether you agree with that premise or not is beside the point. Here's, here's what I have learned. The stronger you are, the more mentally tough, the more able to endure things, the more He has to bring your way before you are broken enough to say, I surrender. Lord, I'll do whatever it takes. Some people can endure an amazing amount of stuff and stay lost. And it's horrible because you realize at some point from this side of the coin watching, dude, God's been trying to get your attention for a long, long time. How long are you going to kick against this? You know, and you know when it really gets dangerous? It's when that struggle stops. When there's been such a compromise with the enemy and the person is so far gone that even struggles won't change their mind anymore, so they're given over to their own desires. And that's, that's when you see, and I, I won't name a name, but that's when you see rich, filthy magazine owners living out all their life of luxury now. See, there's no struggle in his life. There's, there's nothing trying to turn him to God anymore because the guy has gone so far I, I don't say that he's beyond recovery, but that's what the life begins to show. Uh, it, it can't even turn around anymore. Now, maybe, maybe. I mean, uh, God does miracles all of the time. I'm just saying that would be an example of how that can happen. Um, so in Psalm 107, you see that God looks for the thirsty and He fills them. So in that sense, a storm in your life is a good thing. It turns you towards God. It gives God an opportunity to be God to you. Because while things are going well, you don't see it. But when you need, when you hurt, when you don't have and you're crying out and He fulfills it, you begin to understand the relationship. You are real. It builds your faith. You know, the largest church in the world is Paul Gyeonggi Cho's church in Seoul, Korea. And in the early 90s, he had 750,000 people. I don't know how many he has now. 50,000 pastors. A mountain that the church purchased where 24 hours a day, there are thousands of people praying. I mean, you know how his church started? Didn't start with a business loan. Didn't start with a seminary graduate. You know how his church started? 
it started with him saying, Lord, if you really are God, and I'm beginning to think you might be, would you show me? And as some time went by, he said, you know, I really need a bike to get to work. Somebody walked up to him on the streets in Korea one day and said, I feel like the Lord is telling me to give you this bike. That guy got born again then. You know what the first financial contribution he ever received, ever, period, when he did get into ministry? A woman tithing a bowl of rice. Tell me God can't take a little bit and do a lot with it. You know? Now, what would have happened if that Christian said, I ain't giving this guy my bike. I need it. Or would have said, I'm not giving him a bike. He's going to think I'm an idiot. You know, which is the more likely thing. Most of us would do it if we were sure God said it. But we sit there and we debate in indecision because we're worried about the consequence of what people will think. What if that guy had not been obedient? Must have been somebody God trusted, huh? Somebody who had proven themselves to hear from God. And so the fruit lasts, and it was big. Keep going in Psalm 107. Some sat in darkness and the deepest of gloom, prisoners suffering in iron chains, for they had rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. So He subjected them to bitter labor. They stumbled, and there was no one to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He saved them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and out of the deepest of gloom and broke away their chains. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His unfailing love and for His wonderful deeds for men. For He breaks down gates of bronze and cuts through bars of iron. Have you ever heard the idea of a jailhouse conversion? Right? Oh, well, that was not real in Stephen's life. I mean, he just wanted to look good for the parole board. Stephen, I'm not talking about Stephen, but you understand what I'm saying? The truth is, there's not a conversion in the world that was not a jailhouse conversion. All of us have gotten to a place where we said, Lord, I'm in a situation that I don't know what to do with and I need your help. Change me, change my life, change something, but help. You know, Hosanna, that they cried out when Jesus went there. You know what that means? Those people said, Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! You know what they're saying? See, we tell us it's a church word. It's something you see on a church. They're saying, save us, Lord! Save us now! You have to be in a place where you want salvation. You want God's help to do that. Can you imagine standing out here on Highway 6 publicly, a guy coming down the street and you're yelling, save us now! Save us now! You're looking for the fire. You know, what do you mean save us now? What's wrong? They had gotten to a place in their life where they didn't like what they saw and they wanted help. That's where Christians are. So don't criticize somebody if they get saved in jail. And you say, yeah, but those guys never walk it. They never make it. Most of them aren't sincere or real conversions. Are the ones at altars and churches any different? The reality is, most people when they get out of jail or whatever other storm was in their life, they stop depending on God. If He's a kind God, if He's good and He's working in their life, He provides more adversity so they stay in touch with Him. But how good it would be to be able to walk in obedience without having that. When the adversity you get is for others' benefit so they can see you persevere in it instead of you having to receive it to get you to repent, change your mind, and do different things. See, those are the two avenues. Everybody's going to have adversity, but the purpose in adversity can be to get you to repent or so that others can see how you're handling it and be encouraged by it. See, Paul was in adversity. Was Paul's adversity to get Paul to repent? No, not the adversity we know about. I mean, that may have been there, but not the ones we know about. It was to encourage us. Man, he endured that. I can endure anything. 
Pharaoh endured adversity, though. Was his to encourage us how to handle it? No. His was to get him to change his mind. Now, this is not so you can go out and put everybody in cookie-cutter boxes. Well, he, God's trying to change his mind, and God's just encouraging us by his life. No, it is so that you begin to understand how this works. Uh, I hadn't even got to the place in Psalm 107 we're supposed to get to, but I think y'all got the point. So, uh, let me just read. Some became fools through their rebellious ways and suffered affliction because of their iniquities. They loathed all food and drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He saved them from their distress. He sent forth His word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His unfailing love and His wonderful deeds for men. Let them sacrifice thank offerings and tell of His works with songs of joy. Others went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, His wonderful deeds in the deep. For He spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. When you think of a sailor, don't you think of a tough guy? Tattoo that says mom didn't love him on his chest, you know? A girlfriend in every port, all the things that make you manly. So God had to put him in a situation where even his courage failed. And there's a purpose for it. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper, and the waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and He guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His unfailing love and His wonderful deeds for men. Let them exalt Him in the assembly of the people and praise Him in the council of the elders. See, God even put those sailors out at sea who were big, strong, tough men, all that the world would, would say was a man, and He had to take them to a place of fear and trembling so that they would cry out to Him. And then He could use them as somebody who says, hey, I was in trouble and he, he took me to safe haven to help you too. That's what God was after so that they could, could talk to the council of the elders and tell them that. That's us. Now, the amount of adversity that it takes to get you there is different for every person. It's different for a sailor in this example than it is for a farmer. One guy might just have to be lost for a while while another guy's got to be in very fear of his life. But whatever it takes, God's working in the events of our lives to get us saved. Then when you're saved, He's working in the events of your life to keep you directed on the path you should be. And then, once you're on the path you should be and saved and walking where He wants you to go, there's got to be a certain amount of adversity to keep you healthy and to show others how to overcome and how God is a help. So, the bottom line is Christians' lives are surrounded by this. And it is not just any storm. For you, in every situation, it's the perfect storm because it's what you need. We just don't ever think of ourselves as needing something like that. We say, oh, I'll pass. <laughs> you know? Turn to Jonah from Psalms, and we're going to end in about 20 minutes, so y'all hang in there. Maybe 15. From Psalms, you'll want to hang a right. Jonah is between Obadiah and Micah. I want to confess that I had a hard time finding the book of Jonah. Last night, I had to look in the front of my Bible. It's on page 1028. Thank you. Uh, now, that's not because. I've never read the book of Jonah. It's because there's 66 books in this Bible and this is only a two-page book. <laughs> now, everybody knows the story of Jonah. My son did a book report on this the other day, had an oral book report. And, you know, I said, son, were they interested? Did they like it? He said, Dad, I don't know why, but the kids in my class act bored when we talk about the Bible. Isn't that funny? 
That, now, here's a story about a man swallowed by a whale. What, what could be more exciting to a second grader than a man gets swallowed by a whale and vomited, I mean, kids love just that word, up on the shore. And God appoints a worm, and a worm does something for God. What could be more exciting? So where did they get the idea that the Bible was boring? From their parents who never read it. See, our kids are watching. You know, if you picked up the book of Acts, and you read the 27th chapter, there is a shipwreck. There is a snake bite. There is a, a healing. There is an angel. There is a centurion about to kill prisoners. All in the 27th chapter of Acts. Does that sound boring? No, but people have created that perception because it's a scapegoat for not reading this. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's all boring. You know, I got TV's more entertaining. Whatever's more entertaining. And we've passed it right along to our kids. So we have generations of people that are growing up. Look at this book that was fought for, bled for, people died for. Thousands and thousands of people burned at the stake to get us this book. And our reaction towards it is it's boring. Yeah. Or they were taught... Uh, taught things about it that don't accurately reflect the power in it, you know, which is probably the more likely thing. You show up and read from a missalette, one verse, and that verse taken out of, concept, uh, out of context. You go to church and hear a six-foot icicle tell you three points in a poem about the Bible to make you feel better about yourself that has no power in it, and it doesn't work. Yeah, I, I could see that the book would be boring if that were the case. In the book of Jonah, what you're used to hearing is about Jonah not... Not uh, but, uh, hearing God's word, not wanting to do it, and running away, and getting swallowed by a fish, and then doing God's word, and the lesson being that God cares as much about people in Nineveh who were not Jews as the Jews, and that to God He values life everywhere. That's the general concept in the book of Jonah. Uh, other things you might remember from the book of Jonah is that He's like a type of Christ. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, the Son of Man was in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. You, it's a picture of the resurrection. We're not going to look at any of that today because you know that. What we're going to look at in Jonah is, is a principle about a storm. Jonah 1.1 1, 1, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, might say a storm. And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. Here's a point about storms. Whatever the storms are in your life, they cause you to cry out to God, whoever your God may be. And if you are Hindu with 12 national gods and you're crying out to the rat God and he's not helping you, you might work your way through the other 11. And if they're not helping you, you might eventually end up with the real God. So it's a good thing to be in adversity because it causes everybody to cry out to God. Now watch. And they threw, threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. The real problem with most of us Christians is that while everybody is enduring a storm, we are asleep on the boat. If we're uh, asleep because we're unconcerned, since Proverbs teaches us that the righteous aren't affected by the storm, you know, that we'll endure it, or we're asleep because we don't care about the others, either way is equally bad. Most Christians are sleeping through the storms of life. 
it, they, they see it and they put a credit card on it. They see it and they do whatever it takes just to not really give it a lot of thought. And there is no empathy for your neighbor who is in need. Storms are a vehicle for people to see Jesus in you and have contact with God for the first time in their life. Or maybe it's the hundredth time, but it's a direction change. So John was asleep. He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. Even if he didn't tell them, there is nothing more evident to lost people than a Christian who is out of God's will. Because they have heard you say things about God and then they see your behavior and they determine all Christians are hypocrites. When all aren't hypocrites, but you were. And they identified the whole group by you. Don't let that be us. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that this is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Now, these guys go through all kind of trouble. They throw tackle over the board. They do all kind of things because they don't want to throw him over because they're scared. He belongs to God. Then they pray. Let me go ahead and just read it. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided great fish, and you all know that story. What happened? The people on the boat initially cried out to whose God? Their own. Foreign gods. But when the Christian in the, in the type wakes up and begins to acknowledge who he is and that God's called him and that he's sinned and is willing to be thrown into the midst of the storm, not only does the storm subside, but what happens to these people? They immediately become believers in Yahweh God. It says that they became uh, believers. It says that this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to Him. See, if we will quit running from storms in our life, if we'll quit sleeping through them, if we'll acknowledge whether it's brought to us so that we can repent, change direction, or just for adversity so others can see Jesus in us, if we will embrace that storm rather than hide from it, other people around will see that and they will offer themselves as a sacrifice to God and make vows to Him. When my neighbor saw what happened here, a storm in my life and God coming through for me, it causes him to think about his life. It causes him to think about my relationship with God. Now, I'm not saying that that's a one-time deal and it's done. I'm saying it begins a process. It gave me the opportunity to begin to talk with him. Now, he's not some notch on my belt. I'm not looking for an opportunity to work this into conversation. I'm not trying to go win a convert. I'm recognizing that God might be doing something in his life, though, and using the events of my life for that. And you know what? I'm willing for that. That's really what I got out of my events of the week. I should be willing to endure whatever it takes if it means he might benefit. We've been praying for him since he, before he knew us. You know? wonder who was praying for you the day before you got saved. This church prays for people in all kinds of states. We pray for people everywhere. We see all kinds of miracles in their lives. We want to see God meet the needs of... Joe is somebody in Arkansas right now. We prayed and his fever dropped. 
We prayed some more over some gallstone issues. They went in believing that they had gallstones. It didn't happen. Now, they were pretty sure he had them before we prayed. Now it didn't happen. You know, so, well, why did God do that in Joe's life and I still have uh, pancreatic cancer? I don't know. Let's keep praying. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know. We need to close because we're creeping up on an hour, but there's a couple points that I want to uh, share with you. Isaiah 32 from Jonah. Uh, you will want to hang a left. And uh, Isaiah 32 will be in the 700s, uh, 791. See, a king will reign in righteousness. This is chapter 32, verse 1. See, a king will reign in righteousness, and rulers will rule with justice. Each man will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge for the storm. Like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. What will the righteous be? We will be like a refuge in the storm. It's not enough that you run to God when you have a problem. As Christians, you are supposed to become the refuge for other people to run to when they have a problem. This is why you're called the body of Christ. See, here's the reality. God wanted to bring hail on Egypt. But did God just snap His fingers and hail appear? Now, he used a man to stretch out his hand. I don't know why. He always uses men to do things on earth. When Moses stretched out his hand, it happened. When Moses stretched out his hand, it stopped. When he wanted to split the Red Sea, he used Moses and his staff again. When God wants to do something on the earth, he usually uses people to do it. He doesn't use angels. He uses people. We're serfs. I don't know why that is, but it is true. He chose for his glory to rest on us. So, what does that mean? If God is going to help the guy in prison... How is he going to do it? He's going to move supernaturally through other people's lives. See, you are God's means of helping someone. And as you begin to realize that, then it no longer becomes just a matter of, well, I'll look stupid if I go up and give that man my bicycle. You begin to think, I might be the way that God wants to provide him with something. See, we get all hung up on, well, Stephen gave me that. Stephen bought my lunch. Now I owe him a lunch. Now, I'd been praying for lunch and Stephen was God's means of getting me that lunch. If God's going to do something, He has to use people to do it. Well, who would He use? The people He redeemed for Himself. The people that work for Him. The people He purchased. The people that bear His name. Doesn't that make sense? So we need to get off of our thoughts about, well, God didn't do that. Somebody else did that for me. Or here's the really selfish one. I've heard this from Christians. Yeah, you're praying for a financial miracle, but you know somebody still has to come up with that money. Yeah. yeah, well, how did you get it? Well, I worked hard for it. Yeah, and God gave it to you. People work hard for little money all the time. In fact, I've noticed in my career, the less I work, the more money I make. You know, It's kind of like as you sin, grace abounds, but you know not to sin so that grace abounds. You know, The jobs that pay more money usually require less work. I don't know why it is. It doesn't work if you go out and do less work to try to get more money. But, you know, what I'm, what I'm trying to say, though, is when God does things, it doesn't just appear out of nowhere. His people have to do that. That's why we're supposed to be helping each other. It's why we do help each other. You know, I don't send money to some other state just because, you know, uh, we've, we've got buckets full of it laying around here. We do it because I believe that we are God's means of helping people. 
I don't ask people to contribute money here just because I'm trying to hoard it up. I do it because I believe that this is like Joseph's storehouse. That for seven years we may save grain so that we can feed hurting and dying people. You know, that's, that's, that's what you do. Now, I'm not telling you every dollar that's ever come in here has been spent on a hurting or dying person. You know, it's not true. Sometimes it's bought church computers, you know. Donuts. We've bought donuts before. You can tell. You, you understand what I'm saying, though? Okay, we've got just maybe one more, and then we're going to close. Psalm 32 teaches us that we should be the refuge. Job 38, verse 1, we, I'll just tell you, and Job 40 the whole book of Job is about these trials in this man's life. And the debate between Job and Job's friends are, if uh, Jennifer Hall here is Job, I would be saying, Jennifer, all this bad stuff's happening to you because you're a bad person. God never does anything to anybody unless it's because you're a bad person. And Jennifer would reply to me, yeah, well, you know, take a hike. I'm a righteous person and, uh, you know, I, I don't know who you are that you think this. In fact, something must be wrong with God because I'm a righteous person and he's doing this to me anyway. So the two arguments are, is something wrong with man or something wrong with God? God shows up and He says, Hey, who are you people who darken my counsel? None of you know what you're talking about. And the whole point of the book of Job is He has the right to bring into your life whatever He thinks is useful for your life. It doesn't make Him a bad God or you a bad person. It's Him trying to get a certain result, like the guy directing the DMV traffic on his computer, trying to get a predicted result. But do you know the times that God spoke to Job? It's in two chapters. God spoke to Job. He spoke to him from a storm. It's in the storms of your life that God will usually speak to you. It's because it's the only time you're attentive. You know what? I can have that TV going all the time and not hear a thing it says. Let there be a tornado in Sugarland, and all of a sudden I hear every word out of that newscaster's mouth. You know, there are times we just don't hear from God unless He puts us in a position where we have to hear from Him. So that's what I was going to read in Job. Then... One last thought, and we're not going to go there and read it because I, I do think we need to close. I think you all got the point. There are times as Christians, Mark 6.48 teaches this. It says that Jesus made, this is Mark 6.48, Jesus made His disciples get in a boat. In fact, the Greek word there implies force. Okay? Now, you think of Jesus only being forceful in the temple. He was forceful in this case. All the people wanted to make him a king and it wasn't time, so he made his people get in a boat to go to the other side of the lake. You know? I don't know how that worked, but somehow or another he made them get in there. And then he goes up on a mountain to pray. And when it gets to be the third, fourth watch of the night, which, you know, we're talking seriously late at night and early in the morning, you know, three, four o'clock in the morning, third watch of the night, he is watching them from a distance straining at the oars because there is such a violent storm. And he watches them for a while while he's praying. I don't care what you are struggling against today. God is watching. He's watching to see how you handle it. And he's not unable to help you, but he may choose the time in which he helps you. Because it's to your benefit at times for different reasons to struggle against the storm, to change direction, to get saved, to stay on the right path, or for somebody else's benefit, but he was watching them. He made them get in a place where the storm was. Then he stood back, prayed, and watched what was going on. And then when they were totally worn out and they didn't think they could go any further, he walked out on the water to help them. So here's what I want you to get from that. Some of the storms are God's making, even if it looks like your bad decisions. Not so that you can blame something on God, but so you can recognize it for what it is, a tool in your life. Secondly, 
If it seems like He's delaying in helping you because you're straining at the oar and you're about worn out, He is watching to see what will happen. And He knows more about you than you know about yourself. But before you are crushed, before you sleep or go under the water and drown, before you're overcome, He will come to you even if it takes a miracle of walking on the water. Nobody who has ever waited on God has been disappointed. Some failed to wait. But those that waited until He showed up were never disappointed. It said God is seldom early, but He is never late. He will show up when you're at your wit's end, maybe, as uh, Psalm 107 said, but He does show up. So, whatever you're enduring, whether it's the ex-wife, you know, whether it's child custody issues, job issues, housing issues, waiting for spouses, whatever it is that you're enduring and you're straining at the oar, you do it as unto the Lord, realizing people are walk- watching you. It's for your benefit in all three ways. shows you you need salvation. It keeps your mind directed on the battle and other people get to watch you in it to learn and see what your life may be different than theirs. God will come to you even if it takes a miracle. Y'all stand up and let's pray.